Welcome back, everyone, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel. And Lucas, in the spirit of this particular episode, should we stop halfway through and then pick it up again next week? I mean, we could. That would confuse the hell out of a lot of people that uh, are very unfamiliar with baseball in 1981. What would be the equivalent of a podcast free agent compensation draft, is my question. Well... We'll have to answer that question on a different type of podcast in the distant future. But in 1981, 713 games were wiped out by a 10-week player strike. The players union walked out because the owners were trying to cut back on free agency because they were worried about rising salaries. And when baseball resumed, they decided to go full minor leagues and do a split season format, which meant that the teams that were in first place when the season stopped and those that were in first place from the time that the season picked up again till the end of that stretch of games, those would be the teams in the playoffs. Specifically, the first half winners would play the second half winners in a new divisional playoff format that would be in place for this year only for the moment. And this was particularly unfair for the Reds and Cardinals because they were the two National League teams with the best overall records. They did not even qualify for the playoffs. So talk about a big mess, although it was kind of a necessary mess because baseball was just probably figuring these things out on the fly, trying to figure out what they were going to do once baseball started up again. Yeah, no, absolutely. So kind of going into those standings, like you mentioned, when the strike first went into place in the National League, the defending champion Philadelphia Phillies were sitting at 34-21 and 21 in first place. They were a game and a half up on the St. Louis Cardinals in the division. Over in the West, an old friend in the Los Angeles Dodgers were sitting at 36-21. and 21. They had a half-game lead on the Cincinnati Reds. All of this goes to a stop. They announce the stoppage. We deal with all of the BS related to kind of the aforementioned free agency compensation draft that was in place at the time as kind of a, well, if you have a superstar leave in free agency, the team has to get compensated with that somehow. Now, this has long since been ironed out, but this was a major sticking point for players at the time. And so by the time we resume and we get back into play in the second half in the NL East, the Montreal Expos, a team we don't get to talk a whole lot about, finished 30 and 23. They finish a half game ahead of, once again, the St. Louis Cardinals and over in the West, the Houston Astros at 33 and 20 end up winning out the second half. They finish a game and a half ahead of the Cincinnati Reds. So in each of these halves, the Cardinals and the Reds were a combined two games behind the eventual division winners. But if you look at the standings, the Cardinals finished two games ahead of the Expos for the entirety of the season, two and a half ahead of the Phillies. The Reds have even even bigger gripe. They finished four games better than the Dodgers and six ahead of the Astros. So you have quite a mess going on like we have alluded to. But in any event, the Dodger faithful have to be happy because the resumption of the season means the resumption of the big rookie campaign of Juan Fernando Valenzuela out of Mexico. Because Valenzuela... From the moment he became an emergency star on opening day in which he shut out Houston, he was on 
the gas. By May 14th, he was 8-0 and had a .50 ERA. And more importantly, he was a hero to the Mexican-American community because before Dodger Stadium was in Chavez Ravine, there was a vibrant Hispanic neighborhood on that land. So up until this point, so we're talking 20 years, we have a Mexican-American community in Los Angeles and around Los Angeles that has been indifferent to this ball club in spite of all of their success. But as Jaime Harin, the Spanish language equivalent of Vin Scully of the Dodgers, put it, he created more baseball fans than anyone in the game. And he came from a tiny village in Mexico. And as one of my books says, he could have been the invention of a pulp novelist's overactive imagination. He always turned his eyes to the sky in the middle of his windup as if he was summoning strength from God. And he didn't make a pretense of staying in shape. He always goes with beer in the clubhouse after each win. But maybe his favorite pastime was lassoing his teammates in the clubhouse. As Rick Monday would recall, he used to carry this lariat with him. He would lasso guys as they walked by. He thought that was hysterical. So Fernando Valenzuela is not only the toast of the Dodgers, but of a community that is very vibrant in Southern California. Yeah, no, and finishes the year. I mean, you mentioned that strong start. He ends up finishing just 13 and 7, so unable to keep up that torrid start all the way through, but finishes with a 248 ERA, throws just shy of 200 innings, strikes out 180 guys to lead the team. Um, a lot of other names that we're fairly familiar with among this group. Jerry Royce will feature fairly prominently in this season. He went 10 and 4. Burt Hooten went 11 and 6. A nine and five campaign for Bob Welch, and you go to the lineup for this Dodger team, and it's a lot of guys that we are familiar with from prior episodes. That infield remains in place of Steve Garvey and Ron Say at the corners. Phenomenal years for them once again. And don't forget about Dave Stewart, who figures prominently in the season, a four and three record, two point forty nine ERA, over thirty two appearances. And he's got six saves, which is second best on the team behind Steve Howe, who had eight saves at 2.50 ERA. But as far as that infield is concerned, Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Ron Say, Bill Russell, that's the longest running infield in the history of baseball. And they are aging. They're all between the ages of 32 and 36. So this is a team that has gotten close on a few occasions, but has not gone over the top. So this is the last shot for this group. And it could have ended sooner, but the Dodgers had to come back from two game deficits to the Expos and the Astros in their two playoff series. So I'm sure they're relieved to hopefully finally make this right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely got to feel pretty good that they get a chance to kind of make one last run at it. But I'm sure there's a little bit of nerves because, oh, hey, look, the Yankees are back again. And not only that, they have a nice free agent pickup in Dave Winfield. And this is a team that has some holdovers from the team that won back-to-back titles in the late 70s. Reggie Jackson is among them. But they also have a youngster in Dave Rigetti in their rotation. He had a fine season going 8-4, 2.05 ERA. Wins the American League Rookie of the Year. 
and you have Willie Randolph, he's still a Bucky Dent, Greg Nels is still in the hot corner, you have Bobby Mercer at age 35 as your regular designated hitter, even though he only played 50 games, so calling him regular might be a bit of a stretch, but Lou Pinella is still there. Ron Guidry in that rotation. You've got Tommy John at age 38, Goose Gossage as your closer with an ERA of less than one. So you have some familiar names on here. And as we'll find out, we have some not-so-familiar names making an impact. But at the end of the day, this is still the damn New York Yankees here. And given the history, you would say on paper probably the Yankees are the favorites. And it's been a little bit, but they're back. They're hungry. They're ready to go. They have home field advantage in this series. Let's get to game one. And just before we talk about the actual action... This is the 11th series between the Yankees and the Dodgers, going back to when the Dodgers were in Brooklyn. You have 50 pennants between the teams, including eight for the Dodgers, just since moving to Los Angeles. And this kind of goes back to a point we made several months ago, Lucas, about how the Brooklyn Dodgers are just a big tragedy, always coming close but never getting over the top except for the one year, 1955. But ever since they moved to Los Angeles, it's like a completely different franchise. So this is a team that, if you take away their entire history in Brooklyn, is arguably the most successful franchise of the past quarter century or so in baseball. You can certainly make that argument. I mean, the Yankees have been the dominant force for most of baseball history, but they have tapered off a lot from those dynastic eras in the 20s and the 30s, and then a little bit in the 40s, well into the 50s, and a little bit in the 60s. You mentioned the back-to-back titles in the 70s here. I mean, they're sprinkled basically throughout for the last half century, but the Dodgers in recent years have been right there with them. And we will get into the action now. 56,470 is the attendance for Game 1. Reggie Jackson will miss the first game with an injured leg. We'll see him eventually. But the Yankees are on the board very quickly. Jerry Mumfrey singles in the first inning, reaches third on a ground rule double by Lou Pinella. That is his 17th series hit, by the way. And they score on a three-run homer by 35-year-old first baseman Bob Watson. That homer goes to right center. And Watson has played 17 years in the big leagues at this point. Has played over 1,700 games, and he becomes the 17th player to homer in his first series at bats. Nice figures rattled off there by the great Vin Scully on the World Series film. We'll talk more about Vin as we get later into this episode, but uh, for the moment... Glad he was able to work the number 17 and a lot, even if it is factual. Yeah, absolutely. So Ryan Guidry is very tough. He strikes out four straight bears between the second and the third innings. And then Steve Garvey lines out to Nettles in the eighth on a tough play after the Dodgers scored twice in the inning. So Nettles, just like he was in 1978, still going all Brooks Robinson with his glove. And Gossage pitches two shutout innings for the save. This is the seventh straight season which the home team wins game one. In this case, it's the Yankees. 5-3 to three is the final score. And speaking of that Nettles line drive that he caught that was hit by Garvey, Tony Lasorda said afterwards, I get sick to my stomach seeing him make those plays all the time. Because again, remember that he did this to his Dodgers in 1978 too. 
Yeah, no, we made a big point of that in that episode. I think that there was the one particular game he made, like, I don't know, it was like five assists and a couple of putouts or something, and pretty much all of them were making the spectacular look pretty much routine. And here he is again after the Dodgers had been able to do a little bit of damage in the top of the eighth. Ron Davis had started the inning, went walk, pass ball, walk to get two guys on and a hit and a sacrifice fly end up knocking in the couple of runs to make it a two-run game. Gossage obviously not charged with those runs because he didn't allow them on, but then he gets the help from his defense of the spectacular snare by Nettles, and it is important to note that one of these diving stops that Nettles made did come at a cost because he ends up breaking his left thumb Now, it's not going to bother him initially, but he is going to miss time later in the series because of that. Game two features something that I really like at the top because James Cagney, who played George M. Cohan, Yankee Doodle Dandy, throughout the first pitch, he was kind of making a comeback at the later stage of his acting career. And the reason I like this is because Yankee Doodle Dandy is annual viewing for my family every 4th of July and has been for a very long time. So I like that the Yankee Stadium, Oregon, played Yankee Doodle Dandy as Cagney throughout the first pitch. And, of course, George M. Cohan was one of the greatest composers ever to hit Broadway in the early 20th century. So, again, it's just something that I like to see. It's a nice touch to kind of bring everything topical and factual and full circle here. And compared to the uh, quick start for the Yankees in game one, game two, a lot more of a pitcher's duel. It is. And in fact, no runs are scored through the first four and a half innings. But then Willie Randolph reaching on air by Lopes at second. And then he is later driven in by Larry Milbourne. And... That is all the offense that the Yankees need because Tommy John and Goose Gossage combined to allow four hits to the Dodgers, but no runs. Three to nothing is the final score through two games. Gossage in the early running for World Series MVP recording two saves in four shutout innings. So remember, John left the Dodgers for the Yankees after the 1978 season which I'm sure was salted an open wound with the Dodgers having lost back-to-back World Series to the Yankees. So, I mean, if I'm Tommy Lasorda right now and you're sick after Game 1, how are you feeling after Game 2? Probably not great. Tommy John goes seven innings, allows three of the four Dodger hits on the day, strikes out four, does not walk anybody. Just a pretty solid performance. The Dodgers not really threatening too much in this one as a team They leave six men on base for the game, have just three chances with runners in scoring position, go 0 for 3 in those instances, but they're going to need to do some work as we shift from the East Coast to the West Coast. UCLA cheerleaders are at Dodger Stadium for Game 3 as the World Series film shows, and it's very interesting how in previous World Series involving the Dodgers we saw USC, but now we get the other big university in town, so I don't know what happened with USC, but I'm glad UCLA gets a little bit in on this. And a record attendance at Dodger Stadium, 56,236 is there. Valenzuela and Rigetti are the stars. They are the third pair of rookies to start a series game. And that thumb injury you mentioned, Lucas, becomes too much to bear for Nettles. He will not play in game three. And 
You have Davey Lopes hitting a double and Bill Russell having a bunt single before Say drives both of them in with a three-run homer to left. That's only the second home run that Regetti has allowed all season. The Brewers' Gorman Thomas did so on September 16th. So the Dodgers are in business, but then Watson leads off the second with a home run to center. And Lucas, I told you I was going to shake your faith in the greatest announcer of all time, so here it is. Vince Scully erroneously says that that's Valenzuela's first home run. He has surrendered in 14 starts. But in fact, Valenzuela gave up a home run to the Giants' Larry Herndon on September 22nd. So 14 starts between September 22nd and October 23rd when this game is played. Certainly not enough time to have 14 starts. So just goes to show you that like all goats, not even the greatest announcer of all time was infallible. I'm not going to blame that one on Scully. We have praised the staff at MLB Productions for the absolutely great production value, and the writing has been top-notch. They've been able to put the narrators in phenomenal positions. So, I mean, I'm going to pin this one probably more so on the writer than I would on Vin. Vin probably just kind of going with what he had in front of him and maybe not thinking anything differently of it. I don't know. Well, the Yankees are still in business as Rick Cerrone has a double and then he later scores on a single by Milbourne. Then Pinella singles in the third and he later scores on a Cerrone two-run homer. But Rigetti is the first one to come out of the game. And in fact, he comes out after allowing a single and a walk to begin the third Replacing him is George Frazier, who had a 1.63 ERA during the regular season. Frazier does get the next three outs, but then Garvey leads off the fifth with a single. That's his fifth hit of the series. Say walks and Guerrero doubles to score Garvey. And then after Rick Mondays intentionally walked, Frazier comes out of the game. Coming in to relieve him is Rudy May, who was their top starter, but only by innings pitched. He pitched 147 two-thirds innings during the season and started 22 out of 27 games. So it's very interesting that uh, Bob Lemon would make this decision. But in any event, May ends up trading a run for two outs after Mike Sosha hits into a double play. And then the Yankees are in business again as in the eighth inning, Aurelio Rodriguez, not another A. Rodriguez that will play for the Yankees years later. And Milbourne single to lead off of the eighth. But then Bobby Mercer, who is pinch hitting for May, bunts out into foul territory. And a great catch by Ron Say. And they throws Milbourne out at first. So Say is saying, hey, Greg, anything you can do, I can do just as well, if not better. And Valenzuela is able to finish the job. He throws 145 pitches for the complete game. And this is despite giving up nine hits and walking a career-high seven. As Steve Yeager put it, he was in trouble all game, but Tommy just stayed with him and stayed with him. Finally, he won. As Lasorda put it, he was like a sharp poker player bluffing his way through some bad hands. And a lot of credit, too, has to go... Kind of an underrated decision that Lasorda makes in this game. So Steve Yeager is the starting catcher and is typically who the Dodgers have behind the plate. We are in an era, though, where the personal catcher that you see occasionally is a thing. 
Mike Sosha is usually the guy behind the plate when Fernando Valenzuela is pitching. They have Jaeger starting this game. Sosha comes in to pinch hit for Jaeger in the bottom of the third inning. This comes after Frazier replaces Rigetti in the game. At this point, Valenzuela has given up all four of the runs that the Yankees will score. So he is able to completely be settled in after this. And one of the factors here that we have to understand is that Mike Sosha knows Spanish. And Valenzuela, being from Mexico, is able to communicate with this a little bit better. And the World Series film also does a good job of showing... You know, Lasorda comes out and has a chat with Valenzuela as well. And Lasorda speaks a pretty good level of Spanish there with his starter as well. And I think all of that kind of combined with the roar of the Dodger faithful behind him, he's able to settle down and is able to go the distance and get the Dodgers back into the series with a 5-4 victory. We move on to game four. We have another tennis record at Dodger Stadium, 56,242. The Monday Night Football theme for the second time in three World Series films plays. It's also the third straight World Series film, which we get NFL music. And we have Reggie Jackson making his series debut. And he is part of an onslaught of runs that just dominates the first part of the game. Because the Yankees score twice in the first, once in the second, once in the third. So they're up four to nothing. And then the Dodgers score three runs between the third and fifth innings. The Yankees score twice in the top of the sixth. Although there may have been some controversy with that. Because Dusty Baker argued that he caught a ball that Watson hit for an RBI single. However, left field umpire Nick Colossi ruled that Baker had trapped the ball. And that prompted arguments from Baker and, of course, Lasorda. So, this is probably the longest argument between umpire and manager that we have seen in this film. And I know that this is a common thing in this era of World Series films of umpires and managers being mic'd up so we can hear their arguments. And... On a scale of 1 to 10, based on the intensity of some of these arguments, I would say this is maybe a seven and a half. That's probably fair. I mean, they're both pretty livid about it, but my argument would be the call was absolutely right. That ball certainly looks like, from what I saw in the film, that it takes a little bit of hop in the grass, so unless I miss seeing things and it hits off of the bottom of Baker's glove, I think the right call was made. I think so, too, because from what I could see, that ball does, in fact, hit the grass before it goes into Baker's glove. But I'm sure that the Dodgers were just trying to start something. And whether or not it sparked what happened next probably will never be known. But in any event, social walks in the sixth. And then Jay Johnstone comes into this game. He is pinch-hitting for Tom Needenfuhr. Hope I said that right. And on a 1-2 count, he homers to right center. And before we continue, Lucas, you were texting me beforehand. You wanted to say something about Mr. Johnstone, did you not? I did. So Johnstone may be one of my favorite kind of random Major League Baseball players. So he came up with the Angels, uh, made his Major League debut in 1966, spent a number of years there, a couple of years with the White Sox, made his playoff debut with the Phillies during their mid-70s when they were making the occasional runs. He won a ring with the Yankees in 78, did not have an at-bat in that series, but was on the field as a defensive replacement in a couple of games, was on the field for the final out of the series. 
He bounces around a little bit more. He was with the Padres in 79 before joining the Dodgers here in 1980. He ends up coming back, closing his career in 85 with the Dodgers after a three-year stint in Chicago with the Cubs, where he is kind of more of a bench player. Fairly successful career, had a 267 batting average, hit 102 home runs, has this big pinch hit home run here. But I more so enjoy Jay Johnstone for some of his after his career stuff. So he ends up writing a couple of books, the first of which is one I really like. It's Temporary Insanity. It's a book that my dad has. I borrowed it. I actually did like a book report on it when I was in grade school. And according to Johnstone's book, Ron Davis, who had served up the home run ball, was confronted by George Steinbrenner in the Yankees locker room after the game and demanded to know, why did you throw Johnstone a fastball? I don't know what the answer was off the top of my head. I haven't read the book in a long time, but there's a lot of fun little uh, tidbits in there and stories of his time with the Dodgers and the Cubs and stories with guys like Ron Say and Steve Garvey. Um, There's a story about a lunch at the Playboy Club. I'm not making that up. And there's also a portion in the book that Johnstone takes the time to transcribe the infamous Lee Elia rant after an April game at Wrigley in all of its uncensored glory, too, I might add. So if you're ever looking for a uh, book to read, Jay Johnstone's Temporary Insanity, highly recommend. And don't forget, he played himself in a walk-on role in The Naked Gun during its famous baseball scene, where his roles basically just take three pitches for strikes, and that's it. I'm sure that that was a nice little paycheck for him. So, right after Johnstone's home run, Lopes hits a fly ball that Jackson misses while fighting the sun in right field. Lopes moves to second and steals third, and he scores on a single by Russell. And then we get another Vince Scully error. He says that the following events happened in the seventh inning when, in fact, they happened in the eighth. So do you want to blame this one on Scully or do you blame this one on the writer as well? I think maybe this one is probably a little bit of both. Baker singles, Monday doubles, Guerrero is intentionally walked to low the bases, Tommy John comes in to relieve Frazier to become the game's 10th pitcher, and then Jaeger drives in a run with a sack fly and Lopes singles to third to drive in another. The Dodgers game four scoring total ends up matching that of their first three games. And then Jackson hits a solo home run to right center to become the sixth player in series history to reach base five times in one game. Sroni singles, Mercer reaches on air by Howe in the ninth to put the tie and go-ahead runs on, but Randolph flies out to center to end the game. This game lasts three hours and 32 minutes, but all's well that ends well for the Dodgers. 8-7 to seven is the final score. And John Stone celebrates by sprinting across the post-game interview room. And he hurdles a table and tackles Garvey while he's speaking to the national media. And Garvey responds, don't worry. He has to be back at the home by 7 o'clock. I love Jay Johnstone so much. So we go into Game 5, a much tighter contest. Reggie Jackson enters Game 5 on an 11-game series hitting streak during which he had 20 hits and a 500 batting average. He leads off the second with a ground rule double to reach base in his sixth straight plate appearance. He later scores on Pinello's single to give the Yankees the first lead for the fourth time of a possible five in the series. But the Yankees leave six men on base over the second, third, and fourth innings. Dave Winfield, we haven't heard from him, but he singles with one out in the fifth and his hitless streak 
at 16, but Jackson promptly hits into a double play. Gidry had retired 15 of the 16 previous Dodger hitters with one out in the 7th. And then Guerrero and Jaeger ruined that by hitting back-to-back -back home runs to left center to tie the game and then take the lead. And we have a bit of a scary moment in the 8th inning. Say is hit by a Gossage fastball in the batting hell and is forced to leave the game. But Royce does his best to make Dodger fans forget that. He throws a complete game victory, allowing one run and striking out six. The Dodgers go back to Bronx with a 3-2 series lead by winning this game 2-1. And Ron Say would say later on, I remember falling in slow motion. My wife thought I was dead. So there is a bit of sadness, I guess you could say, briefly anyway, associated with this Game 5 win. But like I said... Royce did his best to make Dodger fans forget about it with the win, although I'm sure a lot of people were still thinking about, say, right after that game. Well, and that's a scary thing, given, you know, he's kind of getting up a little woozy after that, and, you know, you have concern about something like that, too, of, especially given that he leaves the game, of is he going to be able to go in a potential clinching game six? Now, thankfully... Mother Nature helps out. We have a rain delay of Game 6, was supposed to be played on October 27th, ends up pushing it back a day, which allows for Say to be in the lineup. Now, the counter to that is that the Yankees get their third baseman back as well. Greg Nettles is feeling better enough with his thumb that he is able to play in Game 6 as well. Let me ask you this. If this had happened today... Would Say have even been playing Game 6, or would he have gone straight into concussion protocol? Oh, he 100% would have gone straight into concussion protocol. Now, it's entirely possible still that he may have cleared concussion protocol in time to be able to play in Game 6. But if you have concussion protocol of today, it's absolutely more of a question. It's not surprising to me that in 1981, they say after a couple days, okay, yeah, you're good to go, you're fine. It just reminds me of a Bears game from the 80s, I want to say, when somebody talked about a player saying, oh, yeah, the concussion bit cleared up by halftime. Now times have changed. I mean, we understand so much more now about injuries and the brain and the combination of all of those things that, I mean, it's kind of amazing that things weren't worse with regards to concussions than what we've seen. So let's get into the actual Game 6, which begins with Willie Randolph hitting a two-out solo homer two left. And this is the final time we are going to get to say this, I think. But for the third straight Yankee-Dodger World Series, we see on the Yankee Stadium scoreboard that there's a this instead of L.A. So, Lucas, what are we going to do here? If you hadn't said something, I was going to because I noticed it as well and went, Come on, guys. It's not that hard. I mean, I don't know if they were lazy or if they just did it for every team, but in any event, it's completely inexcusable. And I hope that this is the last time that we have to talk about this because, spoiler alert, this will be the last time we're talking about the Yankees for a few months. Oh, no. Whatever will we do? So Dusty Baker singles in the fourth, and then he later scores on a Jaeger single, preventing Tommy John from extending his scoreless inning streak to 13. And then with Nettles on second with a double in the fourth and two outs, Milborn is intentionally walked to get to John because there's no designated hitter in the World Series this year because we're an odd number year. Mercer pinch hits for him, and he flies out to the warning track in right. 
And the Dodgers just completely tee off on the Yankees' bullpen after that. Lope singles to lead off the fifth, and they later scores on an RBI single by Say, who moves to third on a single by Baker. Both runners score on a triple by Guerrero. And the Dodgers end up scoring eight runs off of five Yankees relievers. Four of those runs come in the sixth. At that point, it's clear how this series is going to go. Reggie Jackson briefly extends the series when he reaches on air by Lopes at second with two outs in the ninth. But at that point, the Dodgers are up 9-2. And then Watson promptly flies out to center to end the series. The Dodgers win their fifth World Series championship. They become the second team to sweep four straight after losing the first two games. It was the Yankees who were the first team to do that against this Dodger club just a few years back. And this snaps what had been a pretty lengthy home winning streak for the Yankees. Going back to that decision in the fourth inning. So in his autobiography, TJ, My 26 Years in Baseball, Tommy John wrote that before the game, Lemon and Yankee owner George Steinbrenner had come up with a strategy for game six. They wanted to get the early lead which they did, and then protect with the bullpen, even though bullpen had had some issues earlier in the series. But ABC cameras and the World Series film as such uh, show John Payson in the Yankee dugout in just in disbelief of the fact that he was yanked from the game. And it's on one hand, I understand the situation of at this point, it's a tie game. You've got a couple runners on You want to see if you can get something going. But also, you know, at this point, John is pitching fairly well. Why would you take him out of the game if he's doing okay? And as we see, it ends up coming back to bite him. Dickey pitchers in the DH West World Series went 0 for 14 at the plate. Frazier becomes the first pitcher to lose two straight series games since the Dodgers. Hugh Casey lost games three and four to the Yankees in 1941. Frazier coincidentally also lost game three and four, and then he also loses game six. So George Frazier with an 0-3 series record, and in fact, he has a 17.18 ERA, a very forgettable series. And this is the first time the Yankees lose a series in six games. 20 minutes after the last out, George Steinberg issues a quote-unquote apology to Yankee fans for the team's poor play. And the person he reserves the most criticism for is Winfield because he was acquired for $23 million and he was 1-for-22 in the series. And Steinberg decides to dub him Mr. May. Oof. That's a big hit. Yeah, Winfield for the series posts a slash line of 045, 222, 045. So he ends up drawing five walks in the series, which helps a little bit. But his one hit was just a single and a 268 OPS after posting an 824 OPS in the uh, 1981 regular season. Yeesh. And as far as the Dodgers go, this is the last time that Garvey, Lopes, Say, and Russell played together as one unit. And as Lopes would say, Lopes, by the way, made six errors in the series, but also scored six runs. You don't know how sweet it is to beat New York in New York. If somebody has kicked your butt twice, you want the chance to kick his. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at this point, the Yankees are still kind of the class of baseball on the whole. You know, they're a fairly recent back-to-back World Series champion. They have vexed the Dodgers for a lot of their history. And 1955 was way sweeter for 
obvious reasons because that's your first one and the first one kind of always holds a special place for you. But this one has to feel really good for LA Dodger fans who, yes, they've had some titles here and there, but it's been a while. And to get it against the team that has kicked their butt a couple of times in recent memory, that has to feel great. And the other thing that's kind of worth noting, we're in that decade where another Los Angeles team has not had any success against another dynasty in sports. You know, this is the time when Larry Bird and Magic Johnson are in the early parts of their careers. At this point, they both won an NBA championship. But the reality is the Celtics have beaten the Lakers in every NBA Finals in which they have met. And later in the decade, will be on a collision course for this battle that's been going on between Magic and Larry. So I know this isn't quite the same thing, but you could make the argument that the Dodgers being the Yankees was kind of a precursor to the Lakers vexing their own demons later in this decade. You could make the argument for that, certainly. You can also make the argument that this series, to some degree, broke the Yankees because, spoiler alert, and you know we touched on this already earlier in the episode, but want to reiterate, we're not going to see the Yankees again for a little while. And this is the last time that the Yankees and Dodgers have faced each other in the World Series. So to think about all the times they battled when they were city rivals... And then meeting each other every so often, once the Dodgers relocated out west, I feel like that this is closing a chapter in our podcast because from here on, it's going to be a lot more unpredictable as far as the teams involved. Which, I mean, is good for the idea of parity in baseball, but if you're a fan of baseball in the Bronx, absolutely not. And we've already had the spoilers of, you know, it's going to be a while. But I want to reiterate here, this will be the Yankees' only World Series appearance in the 80s. This means this is the first decade without a World Series title since the 1910s. And it's crazy to think that a franchise that we have talked about for so long is going to go through this dry spell, but uh, sometimes you have to go down to get back up. And then, of course, we have to talk about World Series MVP to wrap this up for the first and only time in series history. We get not one, not two, but three World Series MVPs in the form of, say, Guerrero and Yeager. And, you know, you take a look at some of their stats, and I don't have the combined numbers in front of me right now, but Jaeger had a slash drive 286, 267, 786, but he had two home runs, drove in four runs. And then you have Say, who hit 350, have 458 on base percentage, a 500 slugging percentage. He had seven hits, drove in six runs. And then Guerrero had an OPS of 1.179 slash line of 333-417-762. He had a couple of home runs, seven RBIs. So even though it's unusual, all three men deserved it. That trio of Say, Guerrero, and Jaeger hit a combined 327 for the series. I'd have to go in and punch up the numbers later, but they hit a combined five home runs between the three of them drive in a combined 17 runs and you know an OPS that's going to be phenomenal between the three of them you know well over a thousand at that point and we have talked in past episodes about you can make arguments for other guys for World Series MVP 
And given the craziness that we had this year, all of that lead up we had in the prologue to this, I guess it makes sense that this is the one and only time that we have three co-World Series MVPs. And I think that is the most unusual thing to end on because it is, in fact, unusual. And we talked a lot in this episode, but there was a lot to unpack with the player strike and the postseason and all the storylines going on during the series and after the series. But like we said, starting next week, these matchups are going to get a lot more unpredictable, starting with a matchup between future divisional rivals, but at the moment, two rivals from opposite leagues. One team has had some success, but we haven't seen them for a while. The other team will be making its so far only World Series appearance, although the city has experienced World Series fever before. So uh, I guess there is nothing left to say except... Get ready for unpredictability. Yep, and tune in next week to find out what happens. So for Lucas Spencer, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our lengthy 1981 edition of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. Like us on Facebook, follow us on what we're still calling Twitter. Subscribe. We'll see you next time. <laughs>